Hey there. Our team had a great time last week at South by Southwest EDU. This week, we wanted to share a few of our sessions with you through the Getting Smart podcast feed. On this episode, we're bringing you a recording of an intimate fireside chat between Tom Vanderark and Mark Schneider. They touch on all things innovation, higher ed, and much more. Let's listen in. We are excited to host a small and intimate conversation with Mark Schneider, the director of the Institute for Education Sciences, and Tom Vanderark, obviously known innovator and leader on Getting Smart. I'm so excited for your conversation. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Good to see you in Austin, live and in person. Live and in person. Uh, I think I've been to all the South Bys, and so it's been... Uh, been a drag not to be here for the last two years, but it's great to be back. It is. Um, Except I wish the weather was better. It's going to be a cold, uh, kind of crummy week for, <laughs> for South Five. Um, you're you're probably staying busy now at IES. Well, um, so I'm four years into a six-year term, and um, my goal is to push as far in trying to um, in trying to modernize. The Institute and Education Research, it's, uh, it's been challenging. Uh, the last two years because of the pandemic has been exceptionally crazy. Um, I mean, I, I go to work almost every day, and there are days we have an office that seats 170 people. The most I've ever seen was probably a dozen. And mm. there were times when I was there all by myself, which was actually the safest place to be. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> Uh, and, and now things are starting to pick up again. Um, so the question is, how far can we push um, in, in, in what dimensions? Mark, it's, uh, we're, we're at such an interesting point in history um, and interesting in terms of education. We're, we're sort of at the end of the information age when we just as a human species began to use computers um, to, to, to calculate and to help us do our work. And we're at the beginning of this new age where we're beginning to use machine learning, code that learns, um, big data sets. It feels like we're at the beginning of an era of educating uh, in the age of big data. That yeah. feels like it's going to change not only what education looks like, but it, it's certainly going to change how we research, how we learn about learning. Um, does it feel like we're at the beginning of something new? So, so IES is uh, 20 years old uh, this year. Uh, November will be our official 20th birthday anniversary. Um, and I've commissioned three reports from the National Academies, um, and all as part of the 20th year celebration. So the first one will be out on the 24th, and that's about the National Assessment of Education Progress. So Nate has many purposes, but... And, and it, it's a reasonable assessment. It's extremely expensive. And it's, it's not too long, and it's a sample, which is beautiful. It's a sample, and, and no person, no, no one student sits for the entire framework. So right. it's a matrix sampling. Um, but the question is, it's unbelievably expensive, and is it really up to date? Does it, for example, we've, we've gone through a, a multiple-year um, effort to get something that everybody else uses, which is um, automated scoring of reading passages done. And this is going to take years and cost millions of dollars when 
we did, we ran a competition and uh, we gave out a $50,000 prize. We got six winners, all of whom came within striking distance of a $6 million process for, for hand grading, human grading scores. So, so there's, this is a government agency. This is a huge test. Everybody's afraid to break trend. Everybody's afraid to innovate. And as a result, the, a lot of the kinds of things you're talking about, AI, automated scoring, automated question generation, adaptive testing, all the things that the world is getting used to and thinking about, and all of which are built on much better you know, AI and much better algorithms, are, we are struggling to try to in, um, put them into uh, NAEP. The second, report, um, the second report is about the research um, centers. We have two research centers, one called the National Center for Education um, Research, NCER, and the other one, the National Center for Special Education Research. So together we spend, between the two, we spend about $200 million a year on, on education research uh, between the two centers. So this turns out to be also an incredibly difficult problem to modernize them because the, the well, I mean, there's so many things that go into that equation that need to be changed. So for example, peer review is fundamental to our business, right? And it's one of the most stringent, reliable things that we must do to, to ensure uh, uh, quality. And, and, and what happens though, is that almost all the peer reviewers are from R1 research universities and they are status quo oriented and they like the way the research has been done for the last 20 years because most of them have won in the last 20 years. Um, and, you know, so we, so trying to broaden that pool to get AI researchers in, for example, is extremely difficult, especially when you want innovators and you want people who have their own companies and people who are on the cutting edge of innovation. Well, guess what? They don't have five days to serve on one of our panels, right? So it's three days of prep and two days, usually two days of actual meetings. The other people that we can't get are state officials, which would ground us in the reality of the, of the work. So we have that problem. And then the third study, which will be out in about a month, is for the National Center for Education Statistics, which you would think, you would think that we would be doing big data. You would think that we are doing, you know, new data collections. You would think, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and you would be wrong. So the question is, how do we modernize our data collections? So we are, we just gotten, we reorganized uh, the front office to, have a center for uh, data science. It's uh, going to be called the Center for Excellence in Education Data Science. Um, so we're going to start hiring data scientists to, as an institute-wide um, uh, innovation, to to actually, you know, to bring us up to I don't know, 2018. <laughs> this summer, you're uh, I think you're training some new fellows on research methods. Are there um, are there innovations in research methods that you're uh, excited about? Yes. Yeah, so we um, so we're going to release an RFA, um, and, and I'm making this public for the first time. Uh, and and my commissioner, who's actually going to be Liz Albro, who's responsible for going to be responsible for making this RFA and writing this RFA. So hi, Liz. Listen, we're going to do this training program in big data, right? Um, so we have to we have to do this. We have to do this. And, you know, so we've been spending a lot of time and a lot of money on um, digital learning platforms. So we have an X Prize going on that's going 
uh, pretty well. Aaron's on one of the, the judging panels, uh, Aaron Mote. And, um, and we, we, we're pushing really hard, really fast, and we're running into some time constraints. But, um, but we, so it's going to be an XPRIZE in digital learning platforms. We just funded a $10 million network on, on digital learning platforms that include the, you know, many of the digital promise, uh, Neil Hefferman, et cetera. Um, so we are in the process of funding platforms that have 100,000 or more users. And the, they're generating a lot of information. And what we have to do is train the next generation of researchers who can now work with those data, who could understand the unstructured nature of a lot of those data and how to turn them into usable uh, and, and uh, usable research products. So that is that that's fundamentally important. So the the other thing actually is that the the standard business model for education research is um, an RCT, the gold standard. It takes five years, five million dollars, and it fails. So the three Fs: five million, five years, failure. So we the model that we've used for way too long is we do. One investment, five years, $5 million, fail. Then we do another one. We do serially, right? Well, I mean, could you imagine if we had done that with the um, Operation Warp Speed, right? If we had given money to Novartis and we said you have five years, $5 million, mm-hmm. it would be $50 million. But, but, and, and it failed. And, oh, that didn't work. And then we'll do another one. And then we'll do another one. And then we'll do another one. And, you know, it, 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 it's not the way to do business. So what we're trying to do in part with the platforms, especially with the XPRIZE, is to do fast experiments, fail fast because most things are going to fail. The few things that work, the prize is going to be given to the platform that could deliver experiments and replications. So the, the education sciences do, does not have a replication crisis like so many other sciences because we don't replicate anything. But if you don't replicate, if you don't replicate, you never drive down to the point that we need, which is to learn what works for whom under what conditions. And the only way you could do that is to take the few things that work, replicate, don't replicate once, replicate five times in different in geographies or different demographies. And then of those five, what worked? Replicate. And the process is that's the only way we're going to get down to identifying what works for whom under what conditions. It looks, some things can't, like a year's, uh, a year's learning gain has to be, takes a year to measure. But there are things that we could inter, there are things that we can innovate, there are things that we could experiment with that are short term, and we could run a five week experiment and find out if it works. And if it doesn't work, boom, 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 fail fast, move on. If I um, squint, I can see in the second half of this decade that most learners um, and employees have a have a portable electronic record uh, that they have some ability to to to, to curate and manage. Um, is is that going to happen? Is that going to make it much easier to both personalize learning in real time, uh, but also study what works uh, longer term? So I believe that I mean you're talking about something like blockchain, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we have not invested in, uh, sufficiently in blockchain. Um, we have looked at some. Systems uh, of blockchain. The uh, Dallas County Community College is the, one of the best systems that I know. Of. We've talked to them several times. 
we're really excited about what's happening there. It's all part of the Dallas County Promise system. They've been working with uh, Greenlight Credentials, and um, every high school student in Dallas County has a a learner record that they're able to manage and permission out to colleges, employers, um, and scholarship institutions feels like a picture of where things are headed. Yes, and, and unfortunately, Joe May is retiring at the end of this year. But, I mean, one of one of my favorite people and he has such insights. But, you know, so here's the question. Where where else, who else is taking that system, which is now an existing system that we know works? Where else is it? It's been slow. Uh, it's, it's, been, been, it's been slow. Even, even though uh, Commissioner Mike Morath made it available to every high school student in uh, in Texas for a year using ESSERD funds, uh, I think because it was a one-year deal, um, didn't quite as quickly uh, catch on as I thought. I, I thought initially everybody in Texas would have it because it's uh, it, the, the benefits are so obvious. But, uh, but Well, they're obvious to us, Yeah. right? So it, it's always the question of um, getting something adopted, right? right. And, and again, I mean, Every time I've talked to Joe, every time I've seen, if we talked to Greenlight, I mean, all this stuff is, is like amazing, yeah. right? But these it things sounds- are sticky, and it, we're talking about a two-sided market where you both have to train senders to send new information, and then receivers of colleges and employers, scholarship, you have to train them on how to receive and use the information. So kickstarting this two-sided market is uh, challenging. It's incredibly, um, incredibly difficult. So I, I want to talk about another two-sided problem, um, something that we've been um, only for a couple of months. I mean, I'm sorry, the problem we've known for a long time. Um, so there are 14,000 school districts in the United States. So IES is one of the biggest funders of education research um, in, in the country and maybe arguably in the world. So of those 14,000 school districts, I don't even think 5% of them have ever been funded by us or ever been had rigorous research. There are 20,000 researchers um, that go to AERA. And we probably funded, and, and this is not a, the fault of IS, this is what science looks like, right? We probably funded 200 of them, right? right? And, and our money keeps going to the same institutions and the same people. So we have 14,000 school districts, New York, Chicago, uh, LA, Right, you can name the five, six, eight school districts that get almost all the work, and of the twenty thousand researchers, right, probably we funded a couple hundred. So how do we democratize that process? That to me is a, is also a two-sided problem. So I've talked to Avella, the, uh, an organization, a company that started at an MIT, which is a market design uh, a company. Josh Ingris is the one of the founders of it. And we've been talking about how to replicate, duplicate the the match, the match, not match.com, but the match that matches that matches um, medical students and hospitals. So hospitals need people for interns. People finishing middle, medical school need internships. So there's there's something like thirty seven thousand matches that take place. The algorithm goes back to nineteen eighty two. They, they create the algorithm that matches across these 37,000 students and, and uh, internship possibilities. So the algorithm is not the problem. The problem is exactly the same as, as we just talked about. It's a two-sided problem. 
the incentive the incentives don't align at the current time, right? They just don't align. Why would a school district contribute? Say, oh yeah, put me into this this side of the match. These are my problems, and I'm looking for researchers who can do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And here are twenty thousand researchers, most of whom maybe couldn't answer those problems. But among those twenty thousand, even if we have five thousand of, the, of, of, of researchers who have skills and can't get through our rigorous process, but we could, if we could figure out how to get those 5,000 researchers, I'm, I'm making these numbers up, but you can see the concept, and, and 500, 1,000 school districts, if we can get them into this match, we could match them and we could democratize, open the, the education research process to more schools, more districts, more researchers. We could. Um, th- there's sort of an unmentionable problem in America that we inherited this bizarre decentralized system of local control, and we, we have two or three times more school districts than anyone would ever in their right mind design. So if there's a way that we could sort of right-size uh, districts uh, and then work on the match um that, that, that's above my pay grade. It's, that's, a very, that's a very difficult problem. Let, let me um, I quickly want to dive into another problem that you spent a lot of time thinking about, and that's higher, higher education. Before you went to IES, you spent 10 years thinking about college. Do, do college degrees still matter? Um, and, and if they do, how would we know? <laughs> so, so most college degrees don't matter, right? I mean, increasingly, and, and I... I don't think we came as far as I hope we would in terms of skills taking the place of degrees. So how would we know? Well, you know, so I work with um, eight or nine states, and we had really good detailed information about the courses students uh, students took, their, their degrees, um, and, and then their earnings 10 years afterwards. And it was the, – the pattern was so – consistent state after state so the first state that we released the results from was was Tennessee and it turned out that on average people getting two-year technical degrees from community colleges 10 years after after completion were making more than the average bachelor's degree student and I swear to God like we looked at this and we pounded it and there has to be something wrong right I was a university faculty member for you know for almost my entire life, and like, wait a second, you're telling me that a four-year degree in political science, subject I taught, um, is less valuable than someone who gets a skill from a community college and and out earns a bachelor's degree in political science, history, fine arts, and 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 we looked at the data, we looked at the data, and the answer was yes. And then the next state came in, I think Virginia, same pattern, and then Texas, Florida, one after the other. So the, the lesson was technical degrees given by community colleges actually matter. And then I started working with Burning Glass and to work to identify the, the skills that were the, the distinguishing characteristic that made someone employable and gave them that shot into really good wages. You know, and, and some of it was pretty simple, like Salesforce. Yeah. I mean, Salesforce on average was was worth like $20,000 a year in salary. Computer, uh, computer data, data science was like amazing, right, in terms of the, the bump. 
And some of the some of the data science was not fancy stuff that we talk about, but like, could you do an Excel spreadsheet? Could you analyze an Excel spreadsheet? That's worth money, right? So we were. So I I was I was hoping that that message would keep going, and I think part of what happened was that the economy until the the COVID was relatively strong, and everybody with a sociology degree or fine arts degree was getting a job. So the pressure to move from degrees to uh, to to skills, I think, was was um, uh, the pressure was ameliorated. So the one thing that we're trying to do right now, uh, so IS runs IPEDS, the Integrated Post Secondary Education Data System. So we have just put in a, a package to OMB, to and uh, Joe was instrumental in this domain, uh, was to start collecting data on non-credit activities. So many, many, many students, we don't even know, but it could be as many as half of the enrollments in, in community colleges are in non-credit activities. And most of those non-credit activities are not underwater basket weaving, which everybody likes to cite. I've never seen a course on underwater basket but, weaving. But many of them, they may be non-credit, <laughs> but they may roll into a certificate. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or a credential. Exactly yeah. the point. Exactly the point. And, you know, so someone might take three courses in you know non-credit in auto body repair, right? Right. Well, so how many of those kinds of credentials are being produced, and what's the ROI on them? Right. Texas could answer that question because Joe May could answer that question because he has records on non-credit activity. He has credits. He has the information, especially since the Texas Higher Ed Coordinating Board collects data. On, 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 on wages. Right. So we could actually, and, and, and I've been talking to him, and I hope we can get this launched, to do a couple of experiments on like identifying the high-value non-credit activities. I, I spotted what I think is a, a trend uh, over the last two years uh, towards skill-based hiring. It, it feels like major employers got much smarter about the skills required for specific jobs and about how to identify them. Right. That feels like an important change, and those pathways to produce those skills often include credentials. It feels like degrees just got less valuable, and that new identifications of skills became more valuable. So, I th that feels like an important signal for higher education. I'm not sure our friends. Read it. Yeah, right. <laughs> or they going to attend to it? Right. I mean, their business model is turning out, you know, degrees. Right. Uh, I, I think this is right. Right, and and I think that as companies are, are getting much more sophisticated in testing for these skills, we may see some product like this, some, some change. Um, but, you know, um, I, I think, so when I was doing college measures, the 10 years in between, so it, it was amazing when you showed these data to parents, right, who, who had kids in high school or early in college. And you, you'd start off and say, what do you want? I want my daughter to have a bachelor's degree. That's what I want. And then you show them the data, and, and it was like their minds just said, you mean like a degree is not going to get them into the low class? That if they get the skills-based credential, they will be further along than if they get a you know, bachelor's degree in, in, right. in, in, in something that has no market value. And the conversation that just that data uh, encouraged was actually amazing 
to, to watch. And we saw this with also students who we would sit down with our tool um, and, you know, launch my career tool, and they would play with this, and they would say, you mean if I major in theater arts, I'm never going to have the lifestyle that I want. But if I major in business and minor in theater arts, I could actually run a, a you know, production company. Right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, that signal is so important. I, I, I think guidance is more important than ever because it, it matters what degree, it matters what college, it matters what degree, uh, and we have to make sure people don't pay too much, particularly for degrees not likely to, uh, to, to be pathways to high-wage employment. Right. So, so all the work we did was that there are a couple of hundred schools in the United States where, that, that have a brand, right? So when we say get to the right school, this is one of the, this is one of the traps that we fall into because you know, I wanted my daughters to go to the Ivy League. They weren't smart enough, so they went to, they both went to Wesleyan, which is, you know, no slouch school. Um, but you know, we, we think we think that you know, when my daughters didn't get into Princeton, like oh, I, I wanted to hit them. <laughs> no, I never hit them. But you know what I mean. I was like, yeah. there's something wrong with me because you couldn't get into Princeton. Um, you know, so there, there's some kind of prestige in our world. But you know, most students go to the local high, local college. And the, the, they, they may have regional reputations, but they don't have this, the same kind of national market that, that uh, students coming out of, you know, a state university or, you know, don't have that kind of market. Uh, um, and, and the advantage of the data that we have now is that we can drive it down to county level, for example. Yeah. Right? So we could say that the, in your county, these are the, the, these are the skills that are in high demand. These are the jobs. And state labor departments, they do this, but here's the problem, and this is, I think, endemic to everything we're talking about, is we have done a terrible job in communicating what we know right. to teachers, to parents, to students, and, and we've been working really hard on this, and it, it, is, the hardest, it is the hardest thing that, that I think all of us face. It's one of the hardest things. I, I probably said five different things that were the hardest thing. Yeah. But this is one of the hardest things that we face. It's the last mile problem. Yep. And, and we have, we've done a terrible job on, on that last mile. So we accumulate information. We accumulate insights. We accumulate, we accumulate all kinds of things. And it's an interesting time to uh, be leading research at uh, the, the country's uh, research institute. It, 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 it's, it's, it's been a fun ride. Mark Schneider uh, heads up IES, uh, America's Education Research Center. Mark, thanks for being with us. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason, at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 